And so, so I'm looking here at the poster for the movie The War with Grandpa, the upcoming Robert De Niro starring family comedy. Yeah. Uh, and can anyone guess what the tagline for this movie is? The War with Grandpa. War uh, is here, hell. Wait, War what, is hell. Wait here. I'll 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 show you. Here's. It's uh. It's these two guys. I'm Who's showing that? to you now. Who's that kid that's got the war? They both got war paint under their eyes. They got Hold war on. paint. The war with mm. grandpa. Do you, how easily do you, th- like, is this like an out of left field tagline? No, no, what? this is definitely, the, the Hold thing on, I got this one. tagline. Wait, Eight, you got it, Jake? Yeah, here's my tagline idea. Age is just a number and his number is up. That's pretty good. That's not and bad. It could, it could reference either of them, right? So, like, either the kid's going to die or the grandpa's going to die at the hands of the exactly. other. Exactly. Yeah, one no, of these two people will die in this movie. That's my no, idea for the tagline. Yeah, they're going to try and kill uh, each other. Jake, I think that sounds like a tagline from, like, an early 80s or late 70s poster where they would have more text. This seems like a tagline for, like, a 1994 movie. <laughs> That means nothing to me. A ninety-four. Let me, okay, oh, let me oh, let me think about my wait, ninety-four wait, 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 taglines. Can, can I give you a hint? Yeah, it rhymes. Oh, oh man, that's requires. That's a really tough hint because yeah, now it's more energy for me. <laughs> and I, I can give be... you an, an. And there's another hint I can give you if you want. Mm. Yeah, sure. Fuck it, rhymes. Yeah, more hints. Okay. Uh, the word "old" is in the tagline. Um. <laughs> Is is uh, old the word that is rhymed? No. Hmm. Damn, we're really just yeah. asking for the full thing. This I, is I lost all of episode. my synaptic energy just coming up with that last tagline. I can feel I the one it anymore. I, yeah, I can feel the hamster that runs my brain on a wheel, <laughs> just sweating. And to be very clear, this is not an especially good tagline. This is not like a, um, like this is not like, like once you hear it, you you you're. Not going to be very excited. All right, give it's, it up. It's just a very generic tagline. I can't do it. I'm yeah, I'm shoot. sorry, but I'm just not firing on all cylinders. Okay. Uh, Jake, do you also give up? Yeah, I give up. Okay. It's going to be a bad the tagline for the war with grandpa is old school versus new cool. Ugh. Oh, oh man. that sounds really '90s. What are you talking about? That sounds like it's straight out of That's the '90s. That's what he said. That's what he said. said. It sounds like a, oh yeah, '94. Sounds like one from 1994. Listen, why 94? Jake. That's so specific. Jake, why because don't you clean your ears out? They're huh? full of wax. We're podcasting. Let's go! By the way, below that, it does also say a comedy for the whole family. And <laughs> can I read to you the one-sentence synopsis? Because this is what actually made me want to watch this movie. Yeah. Upset that he has to share the room he loves with his grandfather, <laughs> Peter decides to declare war in an attempt to get it back. Oh, man. De Niro sounds... and a kid have to share a room and go to war over it? This I can vibe like, with that sounds premise. Sounds pretty funny. They're I can gonna, vibe with that premise. It's going to be silly. It sounds like De Niro's going to be silly in this movie. He's exactly. going to be like creating like Hot Wheels booby traps and stuff for his own oh. grandkid. Yeah. Definitely. The, exactly. Oh, but that'll be the thing. De Niro is old enough to have seen Home Alone, but this kid doesn't know about Home Alone, so he can use all those traps on the kid. Right, all those de- literally traps that would kill a human being. Yeah, swing exactly. full <laughs> cans of paint from the ceiling into their, the kid's face. Yeah, just send a shard of his nose bone into his brain with the... Uh, with Put nails traps. on a set of stairs with tar. I hated that part even when I was a child. I was like, that's horrible. 
because they full, linger on it when the they full close nail up. going into his foot yeah nasty yeah and the sound but, design of that scene is great too because you can yeah. hear the nail kind of like pierce the skin and he pauses for a moment like and looks then around Daniel and Stern's then, like shriek comes then, out I, I well mean, no even before the shriek and then after he lingers then he continues to down. press his foot down oh. deeper into the nail and the mm-hmm. sound of the nail sliding through his foot i remember i don't even like talking about is, it is very I distinct i just love this movie yeah by the way since we were talking about taglines can i just share uh do you guys have you'll you're not i'm not actually you're not normal people but you're not <laughs> weird in the way i'm weird so i was about to say so would you guys have favorite movie taglines definitely no. not Okay, um, I'm sure there's some that have made me you? laugh, but I can't oh, yeah. remember off the top of my head. Um, I, I had forgotten the title of this movie because I, this movie pretty much doesn't exist, and I've never heard anyone actually talk about the film itself, but uh, it has one of the greatest taglines ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, it's the tagline to the 1993 Bruce Willis action movie, Striking Distance. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, which I believe in seems kind of like maybe Die Hard on a boat. Yeah, uh, cool. but the, ti- the the tagline is you mean Speed Two? Uh, but except this came out like three years before Speed Two. It's a joke. The tagline is <laughs> they shouldn't have put him in the water if they didn't want him to make waves. Oh, <laughs> oh man! Wow, I mean. John that Wick rules. John I Wick mean, don't set him off is is pretty, is pretty funny. Like pretty yeah. lame and <laughs> it's it is, but I I remember when uh when the John Wick posters were everywhere when we were all like, What's that movie gonna be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like what is Keanu's career right now? But all I I would see the the subway ads where it's like his head and then a wick coming out right. and they would say, Don't set him off and I'm like Is he a bomb? But, <laughs> but right, it, but in that case, it should be called John Bomb. John Bomb would have been, which better. is a pretty sick movie title as well. I would. Oh say. yeah. Well, actually, that said, that's just available as a title. We could make a movie called John Bomb. Everyone There's- listening, it's been trademarked by the time you hear this, so don't even fucking try. Yeah, TM. Right? I do love the idea because, you know, in movies where there's a ticking time bomb usually implanted in somebody's body, it's through a more futuristic and technological method, like where they get to read on the like a specialized wristwatch, a countdown or something. But I do love the idea of a villain, like literally they implant like a classic round oh. bomb in somebody and the wick's just coming out of their butt or something. And the, <laughs> and the villain lights it and he's like, oh, this is one of those trick ones that you can't put out. So it's just going down and you got... 24 hours before I like the this. idea of well John Bomb I was still seeing John Wick but with just a big wick coming out of the top of his head and yeah. all the villains are trying to put it out and he's like dodging them <laughs> wait because he wants to, be, to blow up yeah he Jake, wants to be to very up. clear what you just said yeah. where there's like a big round bomb in him and a wick coming out his butt yeah is that that better not already be a movie no 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 no, no, no. Oh. that God, right damn. there that is the perfect premise for Crank 3 Yes, <laughs> it's, I was thinking it's of crank. long overdue. Yeah, uh, you know, Crank, obviously an iconic film. Crank, high voltage, one of the great sequels of the 21st century. Truly, yeah. truly, a, a, a truly deranged Gonzo masterpiece. Crank three, it needs to happen. Get Neville Dean and Taylor back together. Statham's still going strong. Yeah, mm-hmm. Crank three colon butt bomb, <laughs> and just have that wick. Sparking. Just have that wick. Just have that wick Spartan. <laughs> and it could be like I mean. it could be like how in um in the rock those bomb those germ warfare bombs look like <laughs> anal beads so that could yeah. be like that could be like what's inside of him 
just uh, a highly classified anal bead. Yeah. Just, I need to keep my ass clenched or the whole entire San Francisco area <laughs> will be infected. Yeah, and everybody's the, shooting him up with arrows full of anesthetics, just trying to loosen his muscles up. And he's, yeah, just, but he's just so trying to jacked throw, with adrenaline that he's clenching tight and he's holding just strong. Trying to, just trying to make him eat poppers so that his <laughs> shit gets nice and loose. People jumping uh, out saying boo. What is the tagline to Valley of the Gods? Does it have one? Uh, no one way. Sec. This has a one sec, because now, Matt, that you are are actually really nicely pivoting into our discussion topic for the day, please let me introduce the podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just want to say, watch how, how well I do it this time. Welcome to We Heart Hartnett, the podcast dedicated to exploring the filmography of the actor Josh Hartnett movie by movie. I'm Patrick Willems. I'm Jake Torpy. And I'm Matt Torpy. And that was a good intro. Yeah. That was good. Uh, so, Silky listeners. Smooth. If you're wondering what is up with this podcast these days, <laughs> Why well, <is> different. <laughs> yeah, I well, this is the first season of this show. Yeah, it was called We Heart Hartnet, where we covered everything Josh Hartnett had ever been in, and then we relaunched with a new title for season two called can't get enough of keanu and there's a good chance that's why you're here but because we have committed to our boy josh hartnett for life we have to pause season two whenever josh releases a new film because we gotta cover it and to be fair we had already paused season two for other reasons yeah for unrelated other reasons exactly and then we came back very briefly and then we released an episode recorded 11 months ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a little uh, messy now, that's yeah, for sure. Exactly. And now we're doing two in a row season two episodes. And guys, I, I've got to say, I know we haven't completely agreed upon this. I think next week we should do uh, the Quibi show that Josh is in. Oh, my God. The, what is the, the Quibi <laughs> show again called again? It, it's I the don't Kevin Hart. <laughs> It's it's the Kevin Hart Quibi show where Josh oh, plays himself. You better give it. me your free seven day trial for Quibi because I'm not paying a, for it. I want to watch a Keanu movie, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I want to watch Replacements. I don't want to watch Quibi. No Quibi. I and you may be asking yourself, audience, won't this lead to in future seasons an impossible amount of media to consume if we keep staying true to each person we cover? And the answer is yes. We haven't really thought that far ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and by the way, I will say I'm actually pretty excited to watch uh, Josh's Kevin Hart Quibi show because do you guys know the premise of the show? The late okay, hold on. I think I, maybe I heard this. It's like about it's Kevin Hart playing a slightly fictionalized version of himself. Yes. Stop me when I'm stop me when I'm wrong. Stop me when I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, you so won't he's stop playing. Me. He's playing this uh, fictionalized version of himself who wishes that he was in a movie like Die Hard. And so it's about him like pr- or attempting to be sort of a John McClane type figure. Uh, yes, it is. It is yes. a comedy about uh, basically about Kevin Hart trying to uh, have a career as an action star. Right. Um, and uh, and Josh is in it as himself. Uh, but it has like. It's it's weird. I'm going through this, and like obviously Kevin Hart's in it, but like John Travolta plays someone who is not John Travolta. Jean Reno, it's, it's like like um, Jean Reno, uh, Natalie Emmanuel, uh, a bunch of other people um, who are playing other characters. But then Josh Hartnett plays Josh Hartnett. 
Interesting. Which so is also funny. A- Keanu, kind of. He is. Yeah. But it's it's also funny just because, you know, Kevin Hart's like name is within Josh's name. And so I'm like, they got to make jokes about Hart and Hartnet. Yeah. Having right? a heart to heart or something. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like how when Josh is eventually. Oh, oh, it, it's also. Oh, my God. I forgot about this. Okay. Wait, guys, guys, guys. Th- we have to do this. Okay, we have tell to do this me. for the next episode. You got excited. This show tell is me. co-created by the writer of the John Wick movies. Oh. Oh, damn. Okay. Derek, Holy Derek shit. Kolstad, who, who created John Wick, uh, created the the Kevin Hart Quibi show that Josh is in. Well, so, okay, that gives us more of a reason. Nice. Now there's like tendrils intertwining into the two careers. Mm. Also, very important thing about the Kevin Hart Quibi show, uh, there are 10 episodes and they are all seven to nine minutes long. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, Wait, now- and is it a limited series? Is it done? Oh, yep. please tell me it's oh, done. yes, baby. <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> I guess somebody's really enjoying the notion of bite-sized media mm. <laughs> i can't so wait I, for a little uh, tapas you know what i'm saying <laughs> a little media tapas. yeah media tapas so uh <laughs> anyway that's next week because this Great. week we're talking about valley of the gods a movie that may or may not have a tagline uh jake you want to explain what this movie is while i try to find if there's a tagline i, I will try real fast because i don't think any of the three of us would have an easy time with this but here we go all right, Valley of the Gods is a 2020 picture by the famed Polish director Lech Majewski, who uh, has Wait, been working since the 70s. By the way, 70s. is it Lech or is it Lech? Yeah. I don't know. I'm saying Apologies Lech, which probably Polish isn't great because a Lech, isn't that, if you're yeah. lecherous, you're kind of like a sleazy... It's like um, a slang term for lecher, yeah. 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 So, you know what? I, I hope it's not Lech because then hey, we're buddy. just going to have to keep saying that. But I think name. it's probably Lech. Lech Majewski, and um, it's, okay, here we go, I'm going to try, this is like, this is going to be the most ridiculous thing ever, because part of this movie is, part of the charm of this movie for me at least, is that it's almost impossible to explain, like in any non-rambly way. Stop, stop, stop. I'm going to preface, I'm going to keep prefacing. Josh Hartnett plays a writer named John Eckes, who is having a sort of existential crisis where his wife has left him for his hand gliding instructor. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> we cannot, we cannot. <laughs> okay. You want a summation? We, I'm not going to do no, it. No, I just no, have to run no, through the I, movie. I, I, I'm saying we cannot just like, fl- like zoom past this part. This well, is hold a on. movie. Let me do the larger. No, no. no, no. Let me, <laughs> let me boil it down to one sentence. Josh Hartnett gets cucked by a hand glider. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. A cool guy with like a uh, one of those like down goose jackets, and he's just like <laughs> he's like hold on tight to this? his wife as she pays yeah. for the lessons, and he just grabs her waist suggestively. Yeah, and then they fly off into the horizon with one and you another. Think, and you think Josh is nervous for his wife because he thinks hang gliding is dangerous, but then I think you're supposed to realize that he's actually already knows that the sexual tension is uncontainable. And they're oh, probably yeah. making love on the hand glider he's as probably, they yeah. soar above the city, <laughs> which is cheating beautiful. on Josh. Yeah, majestic and and total and total infidelity. It's fucking in in international airspace, so it's legal with your yeah. hand gliding instructor. <laughs> yeah, like a fucking eagle in the sky. God. It's not infidelity if it's in the air. <laughs> you can't you can't get divorce papers as a result of that. Yeah, it's between the Mile High Club and fu- just having sex. All right, so Josh gets cucked by a hand glider, and yeah. uh, then he drives off into the Navajo desert. 
um, in Utah. I forget exactly where this is in Utah, but you're skipping over. Actually, you know, okay, no, I'm not you're skipping doing, over. But you're doing the broad strokes here, right? Let me just do the broad stroke. I'm not going to try and get into the nitty gritty details because there's so many fun scenes to pick apart. But just to just to over over encompass this this whole thing, or just encompass the whole thing, he drives off kind of in this, you know, disheartened malaise, and he begins nice to part. write a novel that I guess he had been sort of brooding over for a long time and now he's finally getting started with it and he's using this breakup from his wife as kind of an excuse to just go off and do it he's in he's in the desert in utah and he starts to write this strange story and then you kind of watch the rest of the movie as possibly the story that he's writing and it involves both navajo legends that entail copulations with mountains and <laughs> and and then there's a sort of parallel yes, narrative with John Malkovich as the world's richest man who like you know like the what is his name is the guy from Citizen Kane called Citizen Kane why can't I Charles Foster Kane thank you yeah so it's like Charles Foster Kane um, they literally the, uh, show footage of like of uh, of Citizen Kane in of the movie. Xanadu, Xanadu or whatever Xanadu that's called. right yeah. Xanadu <laughs> and and like Charles Foster Kane, John Malkovich is this materially wealthy, but psychologically and emotionally poor, oh. mm. broke gentleman who is dealing with his own strange psychological issues. And um, that storyline kind of like intertwines loosely with this story of the Navajos whose land is being plundered by John Malkovich for uranium. You know that, Jake. I, that's, I, a, that's I, a pretty good explanation. Yeah, it's because not bad. this okay. is a movie that is a. Uh, you know, you could call this an art film. In you could call it a tone in, poem in the worst way. You can call it a fucking art. Goddamn! I really, <laughs> I disliked this a great deal. <laughs> I, I, I had, uh, I expected to. I had, honestly, a pretty good time watching. I, it. I genuinely like this movie. Oh, Jake. Yeah. Sorry, guys. This is going to be parts per billion. Jake's stupid. <laughs> All over again. Jake's no, stupid Jake, brain. I, <laughs> Jake, I'm more on, on your side with this one. Yeah. Uh, well, because, again, as we have always talked about with late period Josh, and it's funny to say late period Josh because Josh is like, what, 40? He's 42, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like because his career started when he was so young, it's... It, it's gone on for so long. And so right now, you know, he's like, it's funny because he, so uh, I, I, th- I just saw that uh, like just this past week, like Tom Hardy turned 43 mm-hmm. and Josh has just been around for longer than Tom Hardy has, sure. which is weird. And yet he's younger. Yeah. He's a few yeah. years and younger. So, so it's funny, but, but like you'd never say, Oh, late period Tom Hardy. Cause it's like, no, Tom Hardy's like, at like the peak of his career, like yeah. he's gonna be around for like forty more years, and yeah, so it, knock on wood. But it, uh, but like we refer to this as late period Josh, but let's just say recent period Josh. Yeah, but because we, they're both it, relatively speaking young. What guys. about just like post studio Josh or something? Post that's a good way to put it, Matt. Post studio Josh. But the thing about this is, the vast majority of 
the movies Josh has made after 2007 are movies that uh, do not get wide releases made by filmmakers we are not familiar with. Right. So we never know what to expect. But every and now and was- then, every now and then, he does something that pops a little into the mainstream. But I am here to report to our listeners that this one falls so deep in the obscure direction. This this is this is rivaled only by I Come with the Rain. I feel as far as the types mm. of movies that Josh has been in after being in big studio productions. As mm-hmm. far as just it's out there nature matched with the director who has what seems like on the international circuit a sort of renown that is not felt in the United States so much as probably everywhere else in the world a little but, bit more. But to put it this way, I was reading about the director about about Lech. Um, yeah. And, like, he's a director who had a mid-career retrospective at the Museum of the Modern Art. Right, yeah. Sorry, Museum of Modern Art. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, was, I was thinking of Museum of the Moving Image. But, uh, but like, it's that kind of guy. He's not the guy who's going to have, like, a classic, like, Hollywood retrospective. It'll be like, oh, no, the, the MoMA yeah. will have, a, like, he is kind of more, like, you know, video artist or film right. artist than like traditional filmmaker, mm-hmm. because this is a movie where uh, the story is not really meant to be taken literally. No, uh, it's literally this, not meant to be taken literally. Nice, yeah, dude. yeah. Th- this is a, it's a movie that it's split into ten chapters, mm-hmm. and that was my first major distaste. And oh, uh, you don't I'm, like the interstitials? I don't like. It's not. I'm not reading a book. Um, don't make me try and think of a book when I'm watching your movie just because you think it lends it the prestige of literature as an art form. Yeah, but there's it, a lot of great movies that use I know. like chapter I'm joking endings. because this is not, I don't think it's a good movie. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say one thing that initially made me apprehensive, and this is going to be a very Patrick Willems take, and yeah. I'm, I've probably said it before on this show. I forget everything I say on the show. Um, <laughs> Same. I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. the font choice in the opening credits. <laughs> oh God! It's no. Sometimes I look. The first time I ever had this thought about, I was like, this seem this is a poorly designed like just like the the font choice for the opening credits. It's just like I think here the font used is Trajan, which is like the most standard movie poster font that just either is used to like usually Trajan is just like a lazy way to make something like look important it's like wasn't that a run of the Roman emperors Trajan you're thinking of the Trajan horse no that's the Trojan (laughs) the Trajan horse (laughs) are you trolling me Jakey's yeah no, no Jake Jake has just been secretly Irish this whole time (laughs) a Trajan horse as you're talking about the Trajan horse that's good I not bad. Um, but no, just I. Uh, what I was gonna say was the first time I ever immediately like had a, a font choice in the opening credits set off a warning sign for me was the uh, the first and only time I watched the Boondock Saints, my <laughs> least favorite film of all time. Right. And I, right away, I was like, this seems so amateurish, and like like the fact that this was allowed to get released with such a, a like a just an ugly looking. And just unprofessional looking like uh like opening credits design, that seems like a bad sign. Yeah. yeah. It feels like the work of a filmmaker with poor taste and uh and bad sense of like aesthetics. And uh But who still feels and, like he's putting on airs. Right. But uh but that said, 
Um, I while that warning sign was totally accurate in the case of the Boondock Saints, um, in this case, I even though it's I started very apprehensive, but then warmed up to the movie right after the opening credits because again, this I I really expected this to be just a a really to be kind of like a she's missing, just right. like a, like. I, I was like, oh, okay, it's going to be Josh wandering around in the desert and just like kind of like a, just a, like a, a boring, like, like indie cliche slog. I was worried. And, uh, boring is the, is the key word here. I was, I was also very apprehensive as well. This looks like it was going to run the danger of being the most boring movie of all time. Right. Trying to watch this thing look like it could just be a slog of slow, long shots of people doing ponderous things in the desert and staring at skies and vistas <laughs> yeah. silently and and looks that are meant to be pregnant with all of this evocative, you know, emotion and yet it's just like so dull. But so let me uh, quickly summarize the first few minutes of this movie because I want to get to the point, the moment where I suddenly sat up and went, okay, this is more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, so... Josh is just like he's driving out to the Valley of the Gods. Yep. Uh, you all, you see a big sign. He drives past a sign that says Valley of the Gods. <laughs> and when I saw that sign, I was like, they should have just used this sign as like the title reveal. You I, didn't I thought need the same thing. Yeah, text on the screen. Um, and so, and he he pulls up at night to like a gas station. It seems uh, right. And then he or a sees, motel, like, like it's a motel with a little so, gas pump in the front. Yeah, he doesn't, and he just uh and. He sees uh, an old Native American man doing some kind of, like, ritual where he, like, walks up to an ATM and is, like, uh, sprinkling sand on it. All over it, it, yeah. And uh, and I'm like, okay, uh, you know, we're we're going—honestly, I I was just like, the the lighting is kind of nice, and it's like—and it it isn't doing the just— that like the the she's missing aesthetic of just like forgetting to color grade it right no <laughs> this movie is very well color graded and shot it's, this is a, an, a yes a, a visually striking film and but then the like the josh sleeps in his truck then the following morning drives further out in, in into this desert he parks the the truck opens up the trunk and just pulls a full wooden desk out of it yep. and sits down at the desk and seemingly starts to write. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of weird. And then we fade to black. A chapter title yeah. comes up. One. It says one, and I wrote down all the chapter titles. Oh, you and did? It says, Good. Yeah, it says Tauros. Yeah. T-A-U-R-O-S. Kind of like Taurus, but Tauros. And I'm like, okay. And then we see... John Malkovich looking like a homeless man, like right in with like a an old beaten up leather jacket and like a hood, kind of like stumbling around in like an alley. Yep. Uh, he gets hit by a car. Well, he opens and, up a trash can and is like smelling fruit and taking bites yeah. out of fruit in the trash. He gets accosted by two other gentlemen who are either trying to rob him or might be homeless themselves, and then he kicks the shit out of one of them and runs away from the other. Then he gets hit by a car, <laughs> and then this again. I'm I'm still a little nervous here because he gets hit by a car, and the woman who hit him with the car acts so unnaturally. Like she's like, "Hey, get out of the come. way, you idiot!" But she like she she kind of gets out and runs over to him, but like doesn't really say anything. And I'm just like, 
it, it just feels very kind of stilted and unnatural, and he kind of just like pulls away and walks away from her. Right. And I'm just like, you know, no human being is going to hit a person with a car and then like get out and walk over to them and not say Especially anything. when her windshield was absolutely caved in. Dude. <laughs> yeah, right. It's destroyed. She'd at least be like, give me your insurance information. Yeah, or, or I'm sorry, <laughs> or are you okay? Anyway, so again, I'm a little apprehensive. And then John Malkovich walks up to a brick wall. <laughs> and then, like, seemingly leans against it. And then the brick wall, like, like lights appear on it, and part of it kind of, like, sinks back into the wall. Yep. And he steps into what can only be described as, like, a sci-fi elevator <laughs> that, like, lights up inside. Yep. And then that elevator shoots up this, like, giant stone tower to a mass, to basically a Xanadu that towers over... And it, it just on, on on this like massive like just like tower above everything else, and then he goes in, and it is just this beautiful manner. And you and I just as soon as we saw the sci-fi elevator, that was when I sat up and was like, okay, I did not know stuff like this was going to happen in this movie. Yeah, and yep. uh, I am immediately intrigued because it, it it's just it's this is weirder than anything I expected to happen. And the movie from there, that's just scratching the surface. You guys yeah. are so pretty. Like, this fucking. It's a movie about a guy who has trouble writing a novel and he's not fucking his wife good enough and he's, <laughs> he's rich as shit and he lives in a fucking mansion and he's like, I don't know what to do. And he's yeah. talking. There's the fucking obligatory scenes of him drunkenly laying on the various parts of the floor of his house. And then he, like, <laughs> yeah. talks to his therapist. His therapist is like, shake things up a little like just like go cr- get weird with it like go crazy like to clarify matt's talking about head. josh's character again not john malkovich yeah, yeah. well john malkovich well he because because the the best parts are there because that's where the most creativity goes into it but like it is a literalization of the concept of the mind palace because i think it's pretty clear that the richest man in the world it's like a uh it's the story he's writing so like this is going right. to be also his breakthrough, which is interwoven with his actual lived reality. The Navajo myth stuff, I'm a little less clear on, just having less familiarity with that Same. mythology. But like, sure. for a, a, like two-thirds of the, the narrative meat of this movie are about a, a really well-to-do guy just having an existential crisis, which I'm so sick of fucking seeing. You don't yes, like well, a well-to-do guy having a, a good old-fashioned existential crisis? And then achieving some peace by the end of it with a Dog, ghostly just, image it, of his wife. They got close. The snake limousine that was fucking sick. Catapulting yep. yeah. the queen's car off of the mountain that was fucking <laughs> awesome. The pharaonic burial was sick. But like John Malkovich, when he's actually like what he actually represents and kind of the extension extending to a larger uh, like I don't know critique of of like the absurdity of our consumer culture or something and like. Just like the idea of a rich guy trying to write a novel. How's that novel you're working on? Yeah, are I know. I did think about that. Are you developing all. rich characters? Uh, yeah. Oh, this is a little bit total, of plot development. I mean, this is the thing. Like when when we get these flashbacks to uh, to like how Josh ended up in the desert. This was stuff where I was like laughing at the movie because right. like the way his also so he is. His job is he is a copywriter for what seems to be a big, like, advertising agency. Well, that's where he gets the Westeros, because that's the name of it also. Did you catch that? West Yes, Westeros. his name is Wes Toros. Well, Game of Thrones. Like, so, uh, clearly... Uh, Do you think Lech. it literally was, though? I, I think it's a Game of Thrones reference for real. Yes, 
Yes. Do you yeah. actually? I yeah. all, why would it all be a I Game, was of, thinking Thrones was Game of Thrones? Yeah, it's but the richest, it's the richest city. Or no, is that just the land in, in its no, entirety? No, Westeros is the continent. That the on. continent, right? Okay. Fuck. Yeah. Dragons, King's Landing is the is the rich one, right? Right, but uh, I didn't watch that show because I'm cool and hipster. Wow. <laughs> Congrats, I actually, JK. I did. Um, but yes, his name is Wes Toros, which is very funny, and it's like it's gotta like it, there's no way that can't be some be a he, reference. Like unless unless there's like a another Westeros that George R. R. Martin was pulling from when he <laughs> named the continent that. True, yeah. I wouldn't put it past George R. R. Martin. I'm sure he borrowed from a lot of stuff. Well, all I'm trying to get at is that Toros, I think, is the name of the the like PR firm that represents. Or no, he had to write ad copy for a company called Toros and that's where he pulled the like uh I oh, think Oh wait, the I missed that. Of... Yeah, well the the w- there again, it, we, you can't take it all really literally because there are the weird intersections of what seems like the fictional story and then what seems like the real world like when he uh you know, he like encounters John Malkovich in. Unless we're supposed to take that when he encounters John Malkovich, like in the real world, that he that's just him getting inspiration. Right. That was my that was my take on it. Yeah. Okay, but then he's like a, he himself is a character in the story. Right, but that's just authorial self insert. He's going into his brain. Okay. Okay. I. Uh, Right, I'm, like not, in, I'm not necessarily right. This is just my take on it. Right, okay. I, 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 I literally finished this movie right before jumping into this call, and so I'm just, I, I'm still sort of like, I'm going to just be thinking out loud uh, on this episode, and like, like I think, I think we all it. are. I saw, I finished this movie yesterday, um, and I've like molded yeah, over a little bit, but sure, certainly, I mean, we've all confessed already to not having a deep familiarity with Navajo legends and myths, and that is a right. substantial part of the movie. And whenever it would uh, jump into that stuff, uh, that I just that like I felt a bit more lost. But oh, but just to to get back to like Matt's original point about the the tiresome cliche of the you know the well-off white man sort of going. I mean, it's basically just like an eat, pray, love. He just goes to another culture and to and, and like spend time in nature to then sort of like find himself it and figure like out art, his life. Art Tony Robbins. Yeah, Art Tony exactly. Robbins. But, but they should have a name for that, like the Manic Pixie Dream Culture, where it's like a guy goes, and instead of it being the girl that helps him self-actualize, it's like, oh, just a little dip my toe in the pool of this other country of Navajos, and, yeah, and and what and 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 this new culture, and suddenly I'm, my life is all spiced up again. I got a new joie de vivre, and I can run but back here's home what I to my get beautiful at. wife because we we have this thing where I, uh, you know, we see his wife hang gliding. And it's funny when she takes her, like, hang gliding lesson or whatever, and Josh just stands there when she goes away, and he, he looks so tired, and, like, his his, his suit is unbuttoned, and he's just there yeah. in a suit, pathetically standing and watching his wife fly Absolutely off into cucked. the sunset. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then they're having this argument in their very, very nice, super modern mansion. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's telling him, she's like, you want to be a writer and you don't even, you don't even have a cell phone or a computer. Yeah, he's a yeah, Luddite. So he's one of these asshole, unplugged but, assholes. But that's also the thing. I'm just like, looking at his job, like where he works, I'm like, there's no way Impossible. they would allow him to not have a cell phone. Also, yeah. it's it's just funny that he he li- leads that kind of lifestyle where he doesn't have a cell phone. He refuses to look at a computer, or answer emails, and then just the house that he's in, just yeah, the, right, just sure. the house that he's in is like, really, you don't 
care about any of that stuff, apparently, but look at where you're living, bro. Oh, you're an anti-tech, mate- yeah. anti-materialist? Nice house. Nice yeah. big glass house. Nice, yeah. nice like vertical garden with water hydroponically. Am I giving them the too much credit by thinking people in houses, glass houses, shouldn't throw stones? Is a metaphor that they were trying to actualize as well? Oh, I didn't possibly. Think about that. I mean, just look, an idea. I think this. Uh, I was thinking a little bit. What is it from Step Brothers? That quote with Will Ferrell. It's like nobody knows what it means, but it's evocative. Blades of Glory. Blades yeah, of Glory. Blades thank of glory. you. He's talking about my humps. That's He's my saying, fear. <laughs> That's my fear of every fucking art movie is right. like it's a bunch of hand waving to get away to just sort of like get away with that as opposed right. to, and it's just a thin line between that and something that like right is a work of like actual vision. This know? is the exact thing that drove me nuts uh, in college. Uh, just like in cinema studies courses, mostly when it came to just like talking with the other students there because there's that very like. 20-year-old idea of movies that ambiguity is inherently better because it could be anything. And I don't like being told what to think or what it means Mm -hmm. or what I should feel. I like being able to make up my own mind. And so I'm just going to make a movie where people stare at things and and there's no clear story or or, or plot or like like themes at all because Mm -hmm. it could just be anything. So who are you to criticize it? Anyway, I do want to say I'm totally with you, but... The thing that kind of won me over, or at least really entertained me, is so he's he's in his therapy session with John Rhys Davies, Gimli <laughs> himself, yeah. and and Josh seems to go on a rant about how he's mad people like superhero movies. <laughs> I, I forgot like, about People that are watching already. these movies about people flying around, <laughs> yeah. and then and then they'll jump out of a window and like land perfectly on the ground without damaging a tendon, and it's absurd. And, yeah. uh, and I'm like, this is very silly. But yeah. then what I thought was funny was John Rhys Davies just calls him on his bullshit and yeah, is like true. this is stupid what are you complaining about like everyone just accepts like like these absurd things why can't you and he's like go do absurd things climb a ma- go hiking with all with all your pots and pans tied uh, tied to you walk backwards and, uh, blindfolded go, go walk around blindfolded and then we, we cut to Josh driving out of LA he's on the freeway and then we get him basically inventing what I think should be a new extreme sport, which is free soloing, except with all these pots and pans tied to your ankles, because it's so funny. It's so silly. It's funny because the therapist... Oh, he is doing it. And what's funny to me, though, is the therapist is... You know, Josh is worried that everything about his life, everything about existence seems completely absurd. And so the therapist's solution to this is well if the world is absurd then become absurd with it which is why he then goes off and does these things um but what's funny to me is that presumably this is so that josh can have some kind of like reawakened sense of purpose or just sense of like acceptance it's a perspectival shift that he's trying to right. set. yeah but all of the things the well just the two things that he ends up doing which is climb up a mountain with a bunch of pots and pans tied to his legs right, and like, walk backwards and hit a garbage can seem so irritating bonehead. and so yeah and just <laughs> like clumsy and basically there to give him an injury like he's well, gonna fall over break his leg he's gonna twist his ankle right. he's gonna break well, a rib pat you were saying like uh you know that the the fear is is ambiguity being something that then allows the you know the recipient of the of the art to uh 
to fill it with their own meaning and all this kind of bullshit and like you know putting work on the the viewer or whatever but i actually think this movie i wouldn't describe this movie as that kind of arty like there are certain cryptic kind of ambiguous art moments uh but on another level it seems like it's it's trying to also bludgeon you with its message as well like navajo people like sprinkling magic sand on an atm and watching politicians discuss things while the tv is framed between pepsi or coke or dr pepper or pepsi or whatever yeah yeah it's like okay like damn like this is college student level symbolism now it it, it just bugged me a little bit too it is i think yeah the again i'm not even calling this movie good but i'm just saying i had a good time with it because like those things that like all those warning signs at the beginning and like when i think oh it's just gonna be josh wandering around and spending time with native americans and realizing how how their way of life is better and how that's what we need to to get back yeah yeah that's what i thought it was gonna be and then we have this wacky scene where he tries to just like scale a cliff face with (laughs) pots and pans tied to his legs and it's hilarious and then he just you have him wandering around with a blindfold while everyone, like people almost hit him with cars and everyone just looks at him like he's an idiot. And then he trips over a garbage can and it's funny. And then you get into uh, like the, the stuff that he's writing, um, mm-hmm. like presumably all the other stuff. And, uh, and then you got, again, you've got Malkovich with, uh, you know, and, and like, like this, stretch limo that like snakes around a mountain you've got like presumably that's his stretch limo that he hires out for to pick people up and bring to his mansion right well it wasn't yeah and uh it's there's stuff like that and i will say one thing that i was very glad to see because this feels like a direct response to what i was saying on last week's episode right they let josh be handsome Josh puts on a goddamn tuxedo yeah. and looks like a movie star. He looks like and a million bucks. He looks yes. great. And he's shirtless for the first time in a while. Yeah. And that's nice, it, too. Which is so funny. In this just, like, <laughs> wacky nice art too. movie, they let Josh <laughs> be the most, like, hot movie star he's been in years. And he's all covered in dust with no shirt on. He's got his, uh, honestly, he's, he, it looks like he dropped a couple LBs. He looks a bit like uh, his old, uh, you know... His old teen physique. His old teen, yeah. A <laughs> I'm getting yeah. a little bit of the faculty. From, I'm getting uh, a little faculty in there. Oh, you know I, I, mean? I was thinking <laughs> cast this man in Pearl Harbor too. I'm, yeah, uh, for real. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, James, or no, not uh, uh, like Michael Bay called. He says he wants. 2019, whatever, 1999. <laughs> I forget. 2001. 2001 back. That's when Pearl Harbor came out. Oh man, I botched that one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that's the year Pearl Harbor. Fucking fail. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, I was gonna say. Do you know what this reminded me of? Was I was in my wildest hope. I was like, the 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 suggestion by the the shrink to to be absurd to match the absurdity. You, I thought we'd go in. It seemed like we were going into like Terry Gilliam almost territory. Right. I, I got some vibes from but, some Gilliam vibes. But what you mostly got, in my opinion, was uh, chunks of bad. Terrence Malick meets. Uh, uh, did you ever? Did anyone watch uh, that Wim Wenders movie? Uh, Wim Wenders. How do you say it? 
uh, I Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors. Yeah. Avanta Vosh your windows. Okay. That's four V's. It's not two W's. Like uh, contrary to popular belief. But did, did anyone see Until the End of the World? No. No. 1991 movie like about the year 2000, like about the millennial sort of apocalypse with uh, that. I'm, well, I'm sorry you guys didn't see it because this reminded me <laughs> a lot of that kind of thing. Like a, a better movie still not very good, but I think, but um, like a lot, just a lot of shit going on. Yeah, right. A but lot the, of plot points just being all over the place and a lot of weird imagery and things like sort of half so, explained. So Matt, I agree with you that the overall, you, you know, there were a lot of reviews about this movie. I read a few of them. Wait, yeah. Jake, are you sure this movie has three reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? Okay, so so you're it right. Doesn't you're even right. Have Not a, a lot of reviews, but I read maybe three <laughs> or four. I read three or four. The three of them. that exist. Okay, yeah. I read the one on RogerEbert.com. And of there's a lot of people that say, you know, that the plot is indecipherable, incomprehensible, whatever word you want to use That's for just hard true. to understand. And yeah. I agree with you in that I don't think it is that indecipherable. I think it functions largely as, you know, our favorite phrase here, a tone poem, but mm. about a subject that's not particularly difficult to understand. And he's just juxtaposing two different types of like archetypal cultures, aka like the spiritual vacuum of a wealthy man versus the, you know, um, emotionally and spiritually rich earthly culture of the navajo tribe <laughs> right. and as as you and, know which is has, is a problematic take on not on like their culture per se but like their state of being now well sure uh, because it, it is but they they did also present uh the navajo people where they're like kind of divided on whether or not they want him to buy the land because some people and I, no it was it wasn't I'm, that bad yeah Right. I have I mean, to say, I, this didn't feel. This movie could have felt more problematic as a you know a European, a Polish director, potentially culturally appropriating something and over idealizing them potentially, or right. using them in a way that becomes a caricature, even if it's meant to be positive. And also, it didn't feel like I, it did that. I agree. And also, Jake, I know that you briefly mentioned this earlier, but I yeah. do want to draw attention to one very important point, which is um, a guy fucks a mountain. Yeah, he fucks a mountain so yeah, hard in one scene. that's actually another point in this movie's favor. So, Matt, let me say this, though, because <laughs> I think— I never th wanted to see maybe maybe having sex with rocks is good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe the extra friction is solid. Yeah, yeah you, you, know? you ever just want to climb up a mountain and then, and then put your and then, dick in it? And then put your dick in it? Literally mount a mountain. I hope um, none of my family members ever listen to this podcast. Hey, here, but here's what I want to say, because I think the guy fucking the mountain <laughs> is a good point in this direction. So like I said, I don't think that the overall message in the movie is all that profound or unique. Um, but the reason for my enjoyment, I think, is the same as Pat's in that scene to scene, chapter heading to chapter heading, there, <laughs> yeah. there was never one chapter where I was bored or not surprised by something that happened in it. And regardless of whether or not it was a surprise that was like, oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. This movie's going to do this or like that makes no sense. Whether or not like my surprise had anything to do with appreciating the movie or just being baffled. Right. You know, and and questionably baffled, like not necessarily impressed that this movie is uh, a major masterpiece. But with every chapter heading, there was something that I enjoyed in it. And so from moment to moment, for a movie that could have been two hours and incredibly ponderous, I was actually having fun the entire way through. And by the time the movie ended, I didn't feel that it was incomprehensible at all. It, but I was and the like, second the second half, like 
picks up because it del- it, it dwells more on the fantastical, kind of magical right. realist kind of portions. Right. Especially and- once Josh enters the fantastical part, when he shows up at the mansion, when they, like, yeah. s- you know, scan his eye, he goes in the big gold doors, and there, then, and, uh, what's his name? Kier Dalia? Is that yeah. how you say his name? The astronaut Chris- from 2001. Yeah. Chris Dalia. <laughs> Remember when Chris D'Elia turns into a star baby <laughs> at the end of 20, 2001 he, Space That's why Odyssey. he keeps calling all his fans babies and uh, has a certain predilection is because he yeah, wants yeah. to become his final form. Yeah, a floating A big baby, baby that'll destroy space. Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, uh, no, anyway, no disrespect uh, to Kier D'Elia, who's like... <laughs> yeah, a fa- probably, yeah. A very... Uh, who who, who has, is not related to... To uh, anyway. Chris D'Elia, whose name is spelled differently anyway. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but he's there as like the butler. Yeah. He's and, then, great. And, and there's this whole thing where John Malkovich has basically like found a woman who resembles his <laughs> yeah, his yeah. dead wife and makes her just like look exactly like his wife and sort of holds her prisoner. And I will say so. And um, uh, she is played by. Let me get the exact name here. I believe it's Berenice. Uh, Berenice, uh, is it, uh, Marlowe, uh, who was the, the person who, who died really unceremoniously in Skyfall. Um, Hmm. but I, I, nice little tidbit. Yeah. Uh, but I, I gotta say a really interesting costuming decision. She's wearing this uh, extravagant ball gown with where the back, the cut of the back of the dress is just desi- designed to show her butt crack. I was literally, <laughs> yeah. Pat, I'm so glad you brought this up. It's I a butt crack like, V-neck. I was like, I'm like, this dress, I know it's supposed to be like sexy, but to me it was like just plumber's crack the whole time. Yeah. I was just like, it always yeah. made me laugh. I'm like, ah, uh, <laughs> look, yeah. butt crack. It's so weird because obviously We purposely made so, it wrong. As a yeah. There's so many like, open back dresses <laughs> that like go low down but there's like a point where it's like you know but they're usually really carefully designed what's so like they end at a certain point and this which one is just usually goes right bit, above the butt crack yeah sort right. of this one goes crack. a bit lower and <laughs> and i'm just wondering who designed a dress to show off a butt crack some i don't famous know famous designer probably. but leck was into it obviously and maybe, he thought that maybe it was an appropriate demanded. he's like i want lech. this dress where you see the crack <laughs> lech now yeah. oh oh that's it <laughs> he becomes lech when he changes <laughs> form yeah get the dress lower down further yeah i'm just imagining like the cost like the costume designer like comes out with the dress and he's like it's perfect for one thing then goes over with like a little knife and just like cuts off a little triangle and <laughs> goes now it- it's perfect well yeah. i liked kier kier delia's performance when because like obviously she's been bought off in order to emulate wes's wife so that he can have sex with her for a brief period and imagine that his wife wasn't uh dead and yeah. uh and she's like Okay, I'll do whatever you want, like whatever, you know, I just want to get my son custody of my son. And then, you know, Wes starts to like disrobe her and they start and then she's like looking at Kier Delia and she's like, Are you also gonna be here? Like, is this a threesome? And he's like, Madame, do not be so crass. And then just proceeds to say nothing and stay exactly where he is and <laughs> yeah. just watch them fuck. Yeah, he doesn't budge an inch. He just stands there. That was making me laugh. 
Yeah. Yeah. Kier I, is also just a striking looking guy and he's become more ominous looking now as an older man, even than when he was oh, yeah. Dave in 2001. And yeah. so he has these sunken eyes, but he actually looks mm-hmm. pretty good. You know, I, I would have assumed he was like 120 years old at this point, considering he looked like he was in his forties in the 1960s, but right. yeah. um, he looks great. He must've been very young when what are you they shot. About? In 2001, he was like 35. Yeah, so not that young. I'm, but joking, I'm joking, Jake, I'm joking. Well, you know what I mean, though. It's just that he right. just seems like he hasn't aged particularly. And right. all that's he, happened he, is that his eyes have sunken and gotten these dark rings under them. So he just looks like a sinister kind of like Adam's looks, family butler yeah, or something. Honestly, it's amazing that he is not just a staple of like modern horror movies. Yeah. yeah. Imagine, okay, you know how Ari Aster loves to have like naked old people like in the darkness? Yeah. Yes. Imagine <laughs> naked old Kyrdalia in ah. the darkness where you can barely see him. No. But just those eyes staring back at you. Yeah. Oh, those eyes. Scary. What's wrong Scary with those eyes? Naked old but, people in the darkness. An Ari Aster th- retrospective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Aster with two S's. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's old men butts. Um That's good, Jay. Uh, yeah. Thanks. I, I I'm really fascinated by John Malkovich's house because yeah. Some of the house, like some of the, like there's the part where there's like a party happening there. And I kept wondering, how do people get, did everyone take that little sci-fi elevator? But uh, but they have like opera singers just all standing in a giant fountain singing. Yeah. I think it works but, more like an Uber pool and that giant snake limo picks up oh, like probably yeah. 8,000 different people in one trip. And it just right. goes yeah. over and scoops them up. There's Every, a lot of room in there. He keeps yeah. a low profile until his three mile long limousine that's got <laughs> snake scales on it slithers into the middle of the city and picks up a thousand people. Right. Which is, presumably is like a Salt Lake City kind of yeah. Where it were they analogous? I think it's a it's a non-existent actual city. It's it's just like, meant to be Colorado. a city. It's in Utah. <laughs> it's Utah. Okay. It's in Utah. Yeah. It's just. I mean, he's like the, no, the richest Oregon. man in the so world. Stupid. He's a trillionaire. It's like uh, I think it's it's just not a specific location. Right. But uh, but what what I found interesting was so with this house. Some of the, like, exterior scenes, you can tell they're, like, shot on green screens. Right, yeah. Uh, And also, which gets into a thing that I want to bring up uh, in a minute, but then some of the interiors of this house, like the giant room where they have the indoor tennis court. I like that. And it's like a a palace with just statues everywhere. and, and And, like, that is a real location. Like right. that's not on green screens. I'm just like, where did they shoot this? What yeah. place Poland. has this stuff? And also, and the other thing that I wanted to get into, cause I was bringing up like the, you know, the green screen part. And there's like, you know, the, the visual effects in this movie aren't great, no. but they're also better than I might. Well, like I, until I, when it really matters aka the climax then the 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 Brutal. cgi is so dicey that like it a 2004 renders... music video by yeah. Power right. Man. But, but but it's also like it's so surreal that it's like it's not like this needs to like 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 I i'm more willing it. to accept like weak <laughs> cgi than i would be in if this were just like a regular summer blockbuster weak cgi like... bums me out so hardcore though nine times out of ten when yeah. i see weak C- cgi i Almost all the time, I go, oh, no, the whole movie is ruined. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. now that there's this one scene with bad CGI, the whole movie's ruined. Yeah, because so the Jake, CGI is can look so stupid. And I, <laughs> but Pat, I agree with you that this is one of the few times that because the rest of the movie was also equally absurd that I was like, I, I was rolling with the that the CGI at the end, which we'll talk about later. Um, a giant rock baby, um, but which the CGI I at the so end much. is is bad. But it didn't like it didn't right. destroy this movie for me because this movie already was outside of my usual ranking, like whatever my star ranking is in my brain. It was outside of that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, so. The debate that I think will rage forever yeah. is I uh, oh the CGI in Twin Peaks: The Return is like by a- any objective standard of visual effects very bad. Yes. What scene are you talking uh, about? Uh, so like, you know, the Black Lodge scene where there's just like sort of the, the floating orb. Yeah. Uh, that like, oh yeah, there, there was, uh, uh, do you guys ever watch the, uh, the VFX artist react series, uh, on like the, on the corridor crew channel? No. Where they like, no. uh, it's like the second channel for corridor digital and they'll like break down like just like visual effects scenes because they're like professional VFX artists. Like how, okay. Like why things don't work, why things do work, but there's one where they look at Twin Peaks: The Return, and they're looking at, and and it's the the thing that kind of like drives them insane is because they're looking at this and it's like they literally just took like a still image and just sort of like squashed it and then like expanded it a bit, and it's like it's it's like 1998 level like 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 a uh, OS Paint. Yeah, our MS Paint kind of stuff. It's like this is just bad work that like a twelve-year-old might do. But Pat, but also because it's David Lynch. Yes. Does Thank that you. make it good? Yeah, and yes. this is an important topic that I wanted to cover. <laughs> if we're yes, discussing this movie, it strengthens the uncanniness and the and the uh, just the weird disconnect you feel towards everything that's going on. I, right. But, but it's, it's also very weird because. A lot of the stuff with especially like late period David Lynch is like cinematography that that if this were in any other movie, I'd be like, this is flat and ugly and bad. Mm-hmm. But it's but and it's it's kind of like and the and the thing is cinematography, I, I, camera placement, acting choices, CGI. Right. David Lynch so, gets away with a lot of objectively bad stuff because he uses it intelligently. And well, this is the, this is the debate, right? This is what you're saying, Pat, is like. Is he the debate that will continually rage on? I have this with my with uh, Gabriel. Uh, thinks David Lynch is a hack that just uh, like tricked a bunch of people and has no thoughts. He's just literally having schizophrenia poorly on a screen. Mm-hmm. And I just I politely disagree. David, right. he doesn't like any David Lynch movie. He likes a racer head. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, okay. He, like he peaked with his first film. Yeah, but it, but that's it, literally what he says. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of like I get that and like I'm not on that side of things but I do think it's interesting kind of getting back to like the the whole sort of like a uh, cinema studies student take on ambiguity mm-hmm. it's like sort of like with David Lynch it's like well it's good because it could be anything and like I just assume that everything is intentional and it's inherently good and you can't criticize it because it's all something that he meant to do right, right. and it's sort of it's like kind of the weird thing there especially when you get into like you know, just uh, like abstraction or like uh, just kind of art films. It's like, and uh, and honestly, like while I generally give 
Lynch the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Like when I do look at like this one, this like this one shot in in Twin Peaks, and I'm just like, but like he wouldn't have even done it that way twenty years ago. Right. Like, he, it would like he it would have just looked like I. I it, it, it would have better met our sort of, like, agreed-upon standards of, like, effects quality, I think. But now it seems like a choice to do it in, like, the shoddiest way possible. And, uh, and it's, and again, I don't even think it's good or bad. Uh, it's just, like, I'm just... Like it kind of drives me nuts because I'm like, what? What do I make of this shot? There you are certain like, aesthetic I, I, choices that people can make using CGI and stuff that just, I don't know. It depends on what you were keyed into and what you've like, pers- what your personal compass has interpreted as good or bad. And I think for a lot of us, we would agree that there was kind of like this aesthetic low point in a lot of culture in like between the year 1999 and 2005 where certain types of like early CGI and computerized animation were used to like a effect that feels incredibly tacky. And I, when I see that then later it used in other things, either earlier or later outside of that time frame, I tend to cringe, but then I won't cringe when I see other things that are, you could technically call crude or not well done but it falls within the aesthetic framework that I kind of dig, you know? Right. Like, well, okay. So here's also kind of what I was uh, saying. I, art I, is I, an I, opinion you have. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, <laughs> well, this is why it's funny when we talk about movies and then we all start yelling at each other about why we did or didn't like the movie. <laughs> right. But so like, for instance, here's the, the thing, the, the thing that, that kind of like nags at me with specifically like this one twin peaks shot. Yeah. Which one are you? Yeah. Which one is it again? Uh, can I, uh, let me just, um, I'm going to try to just like send this, the link to you guys in the chat. Sure. Uh, because as as far as a piece of television goes, like I I, genuinely one of, and I'm, I'm, I'm a David Lynch fan. I think he's a person who actually has a unique vision and intention, which is why he gets the benefit of the doubt, which is why I'm charitable. But like, right. Twin Peaks, the return was like. I mean, I, it was just like one of the weirdest, best things I had seen ever aired on television. Like, I was just like, what the fuck? It felt like how it must have felt to watch the first Twin Peaks, but even w- weirder. <laughs> like, right. for, the, for the audiences back then. I was like, I can't believe this is being aired. I mean, I know technically it was like also just basically streaming. But, um, but I watched it in real time as it was airing, and I was just like... It was like the first time in a long time I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on? What is this? Why? Yeah. How I didn't did know this th- happen? I didn't know a serialized television show could do something like that. Could just right. be that disorienting from episode to episode. There's a sort of boilerplate style of television that runs off of, you know, like little cliffhangers at the ends of episodes but, and things to thread you along. And it just did, it did not have any of that but, stuff, which made know, it like, unique. Like, in, so like in the Valley of the Gods, it feels like a lot of obscurantist imagery to get across a, a, what I, I think is ultimately a fairly simplistic idea of just, spiritual void and the materialistic nature of of i guess i would say america specifically and like blah 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 whereas twin right. peaks it's like no you know what we did when we tested the nuclear bomb we uh tore open uh, an alternate dimension and demons have been slowly escaping and swapping bodies and like you know electricity is the medium of these demons and all this kind of stuff i'm just like fuck yeah and it's based on navajo myths partially yeah right it, but it's funny because i uh 
the only reason, by the way, I, I sent you guys the, the link and it goes right to the part of the video that I was talking about. I only brought up Twin Peaks because it's an example of like bad visual effects that that we are like meant to interpret as an intentional artistic right. choice. And I, because we were talking about the effects work of this movie. And by the way, do, do you, are, are, Matt, are you looking at it? Yeah, I fucking love but, it, dude. But like the the thing about <laughs> sorry the thing about that shot in Twin Peaks, the thing that that kind of like nags at me, and it's funny because that scene has other effects that are like very good, but the the point of visual effects or like the like the goal of them is to create it, it's a bit like traditionally is to take something that is not real but make it seem real and make us and make it and. It's often referred to as like a magic trick where like we don't know how it's done. Right. And the weird yeah. thing for me is I look at this Twin Peaks shot where this, this rock is clearly a still image that is just stretched out. And I look at it and I'm just like, I know not only how that's done, but I could do that in two minutes. Right. And it and it's it's like that's what, like that to me is what kind of breaks my brain because I'm like but I, I know this is intentional. I know this, I know this is David Lynch and I have right. to think, and, and there's like a reason for it, but I'm also like, but it's also it this. And again, this is, does not hurt like the, like the overall piece. It's just like, like, cause like I can get past it as soon as the shot is over, but it's just weird because this one shot, yeah. it's such, it's like, it's like my first after effects lesson, but this is it's what's like, interesting, but this is, this, this here, is hold on. Okay. Sorry, because what's what's interesting to me is that we I'm keep salty. saying the reason why we're taking this shitty piece of imagery in a David Lynch show with a grain of salt is because there's already a there's already a historical assumption for most people that have like seen any of David Lynch's stuff that you're willing to go with the flow in that sense, like you're, he's willing to get away with certain stuff. Whereas when other directors then try to pull the same stunt because they don't have the culture, like David Lynch is a cultural icon now, as far as American mm -hmm. cinema goes. And like he gets his own adjective. Things are called Lynchian when they're a specific way. Like he made the rules for a certain template of like filmmaking style. And when other directors try to borrow from that toolkit, what's funny to me is if they don't have the same like cultural background then suddenly it becomes this thing where like well i'm not going to take it from lech majewski when he does it <laughs> in valley of the gods because you know what he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt whereas like maybe his shitty cgi usage is also intentional and the well, thing well, is because he's not like this culturally accepted one guy who gets to do this stuff and we all accept it from him because we think it's an intentional artistic statement suddenly we're like well he sucks he's just but using this is this is kind of the the problem with it and again i say this like I, I i'm not even saying this as like a, a criticism of david lynch but it's like like uh just i'm just using him kind of like as like a i guess hypothetical example like if you reach a point where the culture just like i guess uses your name as an adjective yeah does that mean that you can just kind of like i don't know just not give a fuck anymore and not try and be like, whatever any like, like, you know, I don't have to make it look good because everyone will just assume that I'm a genius and <laughs> well, it's it will, like, it's like being be fine. It's like being Dave Chappelle and just people start laughing as soon as you go on stage. And he said like, he can't have a bad set really because right. he's at this point at this stage where essentially everybody kind of acknowledges that he's just like 
one of the great stand-up comedians. So when he goes on stage, but, everybody starts laughing already. People are like more keyed in to laugh. Whereas you have a different guy maybe try and do all of the same jokes with the same or a similar delivery, and they would get way less leeway or laughter as a result. You, you know, what something we're kind about of another art school debate topic that I keep yeah finding myself having it. it Similarly, crops up in the in the way that like art yeah. and artist and and like their who they are as people, and it's in a similar vein, which is just like, you know, you describe Dave Chappelle being able to get laughs by just walking onto the stage and like right. adjusting the microphone stand, and it's like, well, you know, you got to ask contextually, like, how did he get to that point? Why do people feel that way? And like, is the fact that someone could, you know, do the exact same mimicry as just a completely unknown entity? does that matter and like i guess basically like this is like death of the author i feel like questions like how much does an author's attention in any creative medium how much do you weigh that over your own just personal reaction the current times like you know all that shit yeah right like 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 with i could someone come in here and be like Say that we don't know what the fuck we're talking about because if you know Lech Majewski's work, right. then uh, then it puts it in an entirely different context, and then actually we'll see that all of these things are actually brilliant because yeah. they're just a continuation of the like themes and motifs that he's right. been working right. with for decades. And, and the fact that know. he's the fact right. that he's even riffing off of the the affluent white males malaise is actually a very intentional joke exactly. that he's playing on the audience and he knew what he was doing and he knew he would evoke feelings of disgust and disinterest in the protagonist in the first place because you know it was all you would feel it was malaise about grand. the movie yeah. and i'm actually and i'm actually proving his point artistically <laughs> yeah. and so right. you're actually like a fan a, you're a fan of Lech Majewski, Matt. Not you don't to, you understand no, we don't have to address this here cuz i don't want to but just like <laughs> that is part of that is also like weirdly like happening in a, in a form with the cuties debate that's been raging on online i, like, I, I oh, haven't yeah. been i haven't been paying attention uh, to that. are you specific, aware of it at all I'm, I'm aware of it but i just haven't read anything i, I think i get the broad strokes but and the the crazy thing about about the cuties debate is uh which i don't think should be a debate uh, but is that I feel like this all started just because of the bad poster that Netflix made for it. Right. right. But then it's like, did net was Netflix trolling? Did they know this would cause this controversy? Were they just oblivious to the? So it's it's another one of these debates about like intention, basically. Right. And right. Like, and like, um, and this is what's interesting about looking at this movie is because we are none of us are familiar with Lech Majewski's other work. No right. one's seen another previous movie. I I haven't. Yeah, no, no, neither have I. But okay. the thing is, I, uh, I, as you can tell from like, okay, this entire podcast, it's about examining the entirety of someone's work. So it yeah, creates right. this context for everything. So we are always looking at whatever film we're discussing in the context of Josh Hartnett's career. Right. And like it's the thing that I'm kind of obsessed with with like every single video that we make. It's uh, and that's why they're so long because it's all about like right. establishing the context for what was happening in this filmmaker's career at this time, what was right. happening in uh in like the American film industry at the time. Like context is really important. And then we get to a movie like this, and you know we're like we're talking about like you can't talk about. Twin Peaks, The Return, outside of the context of David Lynch's career. It's like, it's, it's impossible yeah. to have that conversation. And now we have this movie that we're looking at from 
a filmmaker who has had a, had a decades-long career, who had a whole True. mid-career retrospective at the MoMA, and yeah. we're and the only way we're able to look at it is a in a total vacuum, ignoring everything else he's ever done, yeah. and B, only in the context of Josh Hartnett's career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're, we're coming at this from like a very contextually rich and, and narrow for this particular movie standpoint, which is just, we know so much about one guy in this movie. <laughs> we know so I, much about the handsomest guy in this film. And I will say, yeah, talking about it in the Josh Hartnett context it is a fascinating choice because this yeah. working with this filmmaker and being in a, in a movie that, you know, even if it's like, if the movie is probably like it, not as like at its core, not as weird as the stuff on screen, still a pretty weird non-commercial project. Like yeah. you can imagine, like remember how freaked out audiences got when they went to see the tree of life being like, oh yeah, it's that yeah. like Brad Pitt period drama. Yeah, yeah. And, they're, and then they're like storming out and demanding refunds. Like, remember the theater I saw it at? Like, had a sign up saying like, we will not offer refunds to the Tree of Life. You need to know <laughs> what you're going in for. But imagine like if this coming out like in the early 2000s, like the peak of Josh's career, and it's like this is kind of that classic thing of like you have your attractive leading man movie star there to kind of Trojan horse this project and get True. people in to yeah. see like um I would have loved to see this with a of crowded audience probably at a let's say the the now closed Lincoln Plaza Cinema on yeah. the Upper West Side okay but um. Imagine just like a general audience at this movie where it ends with a giant rock baby kaiju thing. Was the baby just, made out of rocks? He was born out of rocks, but he looked like a fetus. And he was about as heavy as a rock. Yeah. He looked That's wet. True. You hey. know what I mean? Like covered in wetness. I think I think the audience I mean, I think most people I don't know. I guess I can't. I can't use myself as as a no, sir. You can't as a general template for how most people would view this. You cannot. But I don't know. I, I watched this with Rach, and and Rach is like a good um, is a good Rach person being to, Jake's wife. Yeah, my wife, and Rachel. and she's she, Rachel. Sorry, I call her Rach, and she's she's a good person to watch this kind of stuff with because usually um, I can kind of come into these movies with. With her and she'll it she'll be like a good template as like a person Jake, loaded with a little less context. Jake is trying to describe the difference between him not wanting to say that Jake's more pretentious and is more cultured in film, and Rachel is a normie who <laughs> will judge it as such. But but it's I think it's a good um, I think it's a good uh, like just juxtaposition to have. Yeah, and we and both I, I, thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Like we both came out of it just like. You know, not thinking it's a masterpiece, but we were sort of just like, wow, well, that certainly was a movie with a lot of things in it that we're not well, going to forget that anytime happened. soon. Yeah. That <laughs> uh, because reasons. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> oh also, before we get, move past it, we ha I, Jake, I believe you have also seen this movie that he made, uh, the yeah. Basquiat film with Jeffrey Wright. With David Bowie as Andy yeah. Warhol, yeah, yeah. a I've long time ago. No, yeah, this guy was uh, the the one. Didn't Julian Schnabel make that? Schnabel, yeah. Schnabel? Am, I, am I tripping? What did I look at? You must be tripping. 
Yeah, I'm stupid. Julian Schnabel no, did that. No, uh, it, it said that uh, Leck was involved in it, but uh, like left. And then well, yeah, I think he was like writing it with <laughs> Julian Schnabel. Schnabel. Leck hated it. Yeah, screenplay by him. Yeah. Right, and then, right. But then he like left during the writing process. So this is, oh, so the only movie I thought he made is actually one he just wrote and he hated so much he left. Okay. Never yeah. mind. So I might I, as well have not seen anything. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think he, ha- wait, does it say he hated it? No, I'm just, I'm just re- assuming. Yeah. Creative differences, um, it seems like. And I have not seen it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, but that it, it's funny that it, it's almost like uh, that film because I'm like I, I'm aware of that film. I've heard of it. I just haven't right. seen it. But uh, it's almost like like Leck realized that that this might be too mainstream. That he's like, oh no, people might actually watch this thing. Yeah, I've got to get out of here. I got to go back to my my weird little insular world. Yeah, Times like Scooby Doo oh, run with the little like doodle doodle doodle. And he's like Dave, David Bowie's in this. We might as well put fucking like Britney Spears in this movie. <laughs> but okay, but here's She's here's a baby then whatever. Uh, here's the question, or, uh, not the question, but what's interesting is here's the answer. How okay? Because this is what I kind of wanted to touch upon, but just by bringing up like the visual effects topic, yeah. because obviously the effects are not traditionally great, but there are like effects in this movie <laughs> yes. there are big sets what seem to be sets or like extravagant locations in this movie how much did this thing cost and how did it get made i here's what i will tell you we've been talking about the josh Hart. we've been doing this josh hartnett podcast what like two years ago is when we started the josh hartnett podcast yeah yeah so two years ago this movie i i remember this this movie was labeled as in post-production on IMDb because we kind of like were scrolling over his IMDb and up at the top he had the three movies that we finally got to cover this year but they were there listed as in post-production or like filming back in 2018 and so my guess is that Leck got the funding and shot this movie and got all of the principal photography done involving you know, the scenes in the Navajo desert and the scenes with Josh behind a big green screen and on location. And then I wonder if the, like the following two years had to do with getting the funds to essentially fill in the green screen gaps that Wait, were obviously... One sec. Let, yeah. let me uh, get the CGI some more info. In. Here is a Variety article from yeah. May... May... 2016. Ooh, damn. Wow. We're, we're talking uh, uh, still the time of the Obama administration. Jesus, <laughs> good <laughs> lord. Uh, it says before John the downward Malkovich, spiral. John mm-hmm. Malkovich is joining the cast of Lech Majewski's fantasy drama Valley of the Gods. Uh, Josh Hartnett was already cast, and it says here that uh, it is the production is set to be, is set to begin. May 18th in Poland, Italy, and Utah. So this movie started production May 18th, 2016. There you and go. And now, more than four years later, we have watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And But this is the thing. It's like the, <laughs> like the, uh, what was the, uh, like, the production company name at the beginning of this was it Wellgo um, USA? There's yeah. not just a, a budget like line on the Wikipedia or anything like that. No, yeah. no. Um, uh, guys, here's what's on the Wikipedia article. 
Valley of the Gods is a 2019 English language Polish Luxemburger. Whoa, Luxembourg. <laughs> Luxembourg making um, appearance, huh? Okay. Yeah, drama film okay. written and directed by Lech Majewski and starring Josh Hartnett and John Malkovich. And then it lists the cast, and that's it. There is no plot synopsis. There is nothing about the production. Damn, uh, you're it right. tells uh, the the running time is not even accurate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is two hours and six minutes, not 131 minutes, as they say. Shit. Uh, Leg yeah. had plenty of time to just watch this over and over again and trim a good 10 minutes off of it for four years. <laughs> exactly. But for instance, it's funny because on the Wikipedia article, the poster they have is the Polish poster, which is fascinating because it... It says it has the name Lech Majewski bigger than any of the cast. You know him. You love him. Lech. Oh, yeah. Lech. And then it has the title in Polish, presumably. Right. And then it has... It's weird. It's got, like, a, a mountain and then a close-up of John Malkovich's hooded face. Right. And that's it. Yeah. It's weird uh, what they choose to emphasize in these. I guess Malkovich is still the highest profile actor. So Right. Well, because Malkovich, he does, does so much. I mean, Malkovich has, not that Josh is a similar actor, but he's one of those guys who hops around in everything. It's like, yeah. Yeah. you know, he'll he'll be in, he'll be like a villain in like a blockbuster movie. Then he'll be in a Coen Brothers movie. Then he'll be in a Lech Majewski movie. Then he'll just, he just works a lot. And he's in all, all sorts of stuff. Josh, the, do yeah. the same thing. The original poster looks like a fucking like updated kind of good, the bad and the ugly. Like with all their yeah. faces and different like 60s, like sort of poster style, like colors. I, I got to say, I love the, the that poster. The, the poster three, made the tricolored me, poster. Uh, hopeful and yeah <laughs> and yeah and then what and, happened uh, and, and watch, watch them. yeah also <laughs> a thing that's interesting is Lech Majewski also the co-cinematographer on this movie yeah uh, he seems like the kind of guy like I, 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 I when I was watching this movie again in a vacuum which definitely is something everyone needs to keep in mind for all of us uh, I thought he was more like um, what's that fucking British guy he's actually really good but he did like under the skin and uh oh john glazer yeah Yeah. i I thought he might have been one of these people that came from like arty luxury brand commercials or something yeah that was the vibe i was getting no it's he's he's polish so he stems from like a nice tradition of really gonzo movies but he was making stuff in the late 70s so he's a right. much he's much older. He's he's a he's not a contemporary of John Glazer right, or any of these music video guys who were usually like they came out of like workshops making music videos in the nineties, right? Yeah, those guys. Yeah, uh, well, that's it. Like, like Glazer was from the like music video commercial world. I mean, right. right. You know, Glazer made the iconic music video for Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai. That's right. <laughs> Which I, I rules. always I like the Universal by. Uh, Blur. Blur. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, the one that's all like a clockwork orange riff. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one. Uh, I mean, he, he was a guy who like, because his first movie was Sexy Beast. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, he was like art, but like he was a guy who like, uh, you know, his his movies, they would be like, um, I still haven't seen Birth. Yeah. Uh, that movie's I, weird. I, I need to get to it. But, They're like, great. It's a movie with a twist, movie- so you can't watch, it has a bad time for, you can't rewatch it. Okay. That's the problem. I, well, I, I thankfully do not know the twist. Um, but like, you know, Sexy Beast, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it is like, it's commercial enough. Like it's a crime movie, you yeah. know, with like 
big colorful characters and like movie stars in it, but then he brings his you know, his sensibility to it. Like mm-hmm. Lech Majewski is not doing that. He's no. like, we are making an art film that is about these things. And it's, it's like, there's, he, he's never going to hook any mainstream audiences. with. No, this. he's, he's pulling off the same vibe that like, you know, those blockbuster guys like Bellatar, you know, those vibes <laughs> where he's going to be dragging people in by the, the millions into those seats. Oh God, theater. just to sit yeah. for six hours, watch Satan tango. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is, but this is like why I wonder like, how this got made, how he got these people on board. Well, I'm, I looked I'm at so an interview curious. with Josh. Josh was a fan. Josh saw his previous movie, which or maybe like two movies back, called The Miller and the Cross, I think, something oh, yeah. like that. And he just said that he he liked uh, Lex's artistic temperament. He just, I mean, you can see it in here, regardless of whether or not you like it, but it's a guy with a sp- very specific visual sense and vision, regardless of whether or not you think it's profound or interesting. You could see where He's, you could feel like in good hands and making something like cool right. for posterity of your the people's career when they think yeah. of you, you know, like that Josh is like, this is, this is in line, I think fully with Josh's like own, I feel like self conception and trajectory as an actor, which is de-emphasizing it, being disillusioned by it. And then suddenly like somebody who I, all, all due respect to Josh, somebody who is, is, is trying sort of late in the game now that he's like living abroad and he's, uh, whatever is like making these very arty choices, but not really having the greatest ability to discern good, good from bad and kind of falling on his face a lot. It really seems like honestly with Josh, he is just like, cause it's funny because he's, he'll be in movies with, uh, like, like with John Malkovich, who appears yeah. in like mainstream Hollywood productions all the time and still does stuff like this. Right. Uh, but then Josh, it, it's almost like he's just being stubborn. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and he's just like, no, I'm going to be in the most uncommercial stuff possible. I'm going to be in stuff nobody will ever see that will make zero dollars. And that if people like accidentally drunkenly rent it on iTunes, <laughs> they're going to get mad half an hour in and turn it off. But then how do you explain Quibi? I guess, which just feels a lot like a cash. It was like you and Kevin Hart on the new platform. It's like, well, I think nothing could be more mainstream. I think Josh is having that realization too. And he wants to have it both ways. Like, like, well, um, he hasn't until (laughs) that's, what's funny about it. That's why he's recently started. I'm so anxious to watch, uh, die heart because die heart comes out like now. And then January, what was once Cash Truck, now called Wrath of Man, which is really fucking dumb. Dumb. Established. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> these are, like, the first returns to anything mainstream. Right. And, and I, so, like, and, and they seem linked in my mind. Like, uh, Valley of the Gods, this is a 2016 decision. Yeah. Mm. I And I read some interview with Josh recently. Maybe it was talking about Most Wanted. Was it the Wanted. Collider one where he talked about Most Wanted? Probably because or I forget, but somebody asked him, you know, what what would you like to do down the road? And uh, his two answers more recently have been comedies and something that his kids can watch because he's at that age now where his kids are, I guess, old enough to start being able to watch and and have an understanding of what their father does, I guess. 
And Josh, if you look at his catalog, literally has nothing that he can show a small child. I can't yeah. think of a single movie. The faculty that's, is the closest you can get. Yeah, maybe yeah. the faculty or, or the virgin suicides is the <laughs> no, best you can get. Honestly, guys, uh, Pearl Harbor is rated PG-13. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah. they can watch that, learn something about yeah. true history. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what, the kids don't want to watch I Come With The Rain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Man I mean, up. <laughs> I'm putting on I Come With The Rain. Homicide. Bird up. So I would love to uh, see Josh do a Pixar voice or something. You know, in that yes. interview, too, the other thing that he mentioned, and this was a thought I had about what kind of role would, would fit Josh going down the road, is one of the reasons he connected with Leck was not only an admiration for his work, but they also had kind of similar tastes in uh, movies. And one of their mutual favorite movies is a very good art house cliche. It's eight and a half. And uh, okay, that's a great sense. movie, but it made me think that of uh, a, a template of character for Josh that I hadn't considered before, which I think would fit him really well, is that there are certain aspects of him that remind me of uh, Marcello Maestriani, where he could play sort of these characters that, you know, like in any any good Fellini movie, ramble through a series of picturesque, um, surreal episodes. Vignette-y kind of things, but yeah. different from Leck, which Fellini had going for for him, which makes his movies much better, are a really topsy-turvy sense of humor. And I kind of think Josh is now at that age, he's in his early 40s, where he could play a kind of uh, Maestriani type of character, where there's, he's sort of like a bumbling but charming and suave, foolish character who who goes through these sort of surreal episodes. I have I have a feeling that that's what Josh secretly wishes some of these projects were at the end of the day. He's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like I, eight I mean, and a half is his favorite movie. And I could see him playing like the tortured director who's handsome and he's smoking cigarettes and like, he's all like cursed these surreal, my symmetrical face. Yeah. All these surreal, fantastical episodes are happening around him and mm. there's something suave about him, but he's also played as the fool, which is what always made those movies uh, more interesting because it wasn't just like oh my god look how sexy Marcello is it's it's like right. Marcello is handsome but he's also like the most flawed individual in the movies in the first place that, that's a good point though is like this is what's now important like emphasized in my own personal consumption of things that are kind of heavy like this and very like histrionic and and arty is like um I I've realized for myself now I I can't just it's so hard for me to to find uh that's why I can't watch like Haneke anymore and like these people like these like grim as fuck. It's kind of why I like the house that Jack built, even though Lars von Trier has some clunkers for me in terms of like histrionic and just bleak for no reason. But like these are very different from what from Leck. But like what I'm saying is I like a, a, a I need some sort of sense of humor in these things. Mm-hmm. Like right. I need a little bit of a, like a just a whimsy or some sort of cheeky like. I, I, just some sort of humor running through it, yeah. Uh, because it just it, it's a grind when it's you know Josh laying on the floor of parts of his. Yeah, I think I think Leck has enough of a sense of humor where some of these scenes are meant to be humorous, but he does not. He's not funny enough. No, for, I mean like for as, any as, as much to as give as, you like a belly laugh or a right. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, you know, as as I've said, Josh 
climbing that cliff face with the pots and pans on his ankle. Right, but right. Like, but again, and the, the thing is, it's nice to hear that he wants to do more comedy, and yeah. I, I'm yeah. excited to, to watch this Quibi show, but because <laughs> re- remember, like, looking back, like, remember how charming and good he is for, like, the first like two thirds of lucky number Slevin. Yeah. When he's kind of in kind of like, like rom-com mode. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like, like re- guys, remember Oh Lucy. Yeah. I love Oh Lucy. And how good he is. Fuck. I love and 40 days and 40 nights. I think that movie is great. That was I, I wild. Mean, I don't think it's great, <laughs> but I enjoy it. He's but, so but, funny in that movie. Guys, can I, I have, oh, he is. I'm going to pee my pants. May I please leave to pee? Yes, Matt. Sure. Go. All right. Take yeah. a piss. But I, the thing is, uh, while I like mostly enjoyed this movie, right? I, it's not a great acting showcase for Josh. No, like he mostly is there to kind of like observe things and just like he, he's just he's kind of like an anchor for the movie. But like this is not a performance-driven film. This is not a movie no. where you you walk away talking about anyone's performance well this is the problem too with josh is that his his natural physical state stature his voice his his face the way he carries himself all lean naturally towards this sort of like broody cyphery kind Mm -hmm. of character and i think he wishes that that wasn't what he was so naturally like the most naturally built for is a character that underacts and who tends to be kind of like mysterious and I get the feeling that Josh, you know, deep in his heart, wants to do things where he can express the totality of emotions he feels as a full human being. And instead, what all these directors tend to see in him is like, oh, look at this broody man, and, and I can get him to stare mysteriously out into a vista, or I can get him to like sit on a rooftop on a, in a city at night. And he can look right. at the clouds. And he's just like, I need to be in more stuff where I can be silly because this is what I feel yeah. in my heart, but my body is my mind's right. telling me no but my body my body's telling me yeah i just have I, to be a broody I, man Jake, i totally are you, are agree you quoting sex pest r kelly oh shit he was god <laughs> damn it you're the, right i was jake the two things jake. i want to say to that is <laughs> That's um, a big no-no is that uh one of my favorite moments in this movie is early on when josh is just running full tilt on the treadmill yeah and I and wanted it, to see him brick it on that thing, but whatever. Oh, I, I was <laughs> yeah. waiting for it. But, like, he's going so hard, and he's yeah. a tall guy anyway. And so, like, it's you rarely see him, like, exert himself like that in a right. movie. And it's just, like, again, a good use of, like, him physically. And just in this one shot where you see him, and then also there's a mirror behind him. So you see, like, the reflection there. And just, like, the intense, like, loud sound of his, like, his feet slapping down on the, on the treadmill. I'm just <laughs> oh, like, God. I, I, I like this. Yeah. And But the other <laughs> thing is, I think with a lot of these characters, um, because, yeah. like, like again, as you're, you're saying, he gets cast as a lot of, like, broody people. But rarely are the characters that compelling. Like, I think right. in terms of, like... This is the uh, problem with broody or, people is that they end up well, being th- very uninteresting. The, They're one yeah, note. I, yeah. I, I think, like, the best use of him in like broody mode is penny dreadful yeah which uh was just like a a more it was just a more interesting character there's this mistaken Uh, assumption that broodiness is 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 like the outward appearance that signals depth and mysteriousness internally and i find in real life broody people end up being kind of boring when you actually that's 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 called talk because they actually have nothing to say (laughs) yeah 
The reason it's they're a, so broody is it's a defense mechanism to right. hide the fact that there's actually nothing going on that they're thinking about. Run cover on the deep void that you're contemplating, which is actually your thoughts and opinions. Yeah, but I'll be damned right. if it doesn't work a lot of the time. Oh, like, hell yeah. What, <laughs> what I, I like would a good like to see more of is, I, I know we talked about this like a while back, but uh, I really like Josh in that opening scene of Sin City. Yeah, yeah. Where it, it kind of uses, he's like broody and mysterious, but also with a kind of like, you know, old... Oh, like like classical uh like hollywood charm right and uh where he's like a like a suave guy offering a woman a cigarette on a balcony a suave and boy like, and and he's good at like again it, it's like i unfortunately he just doesn't get the like roles of the same quality but he's got a little bit of like the Leonardo DiCaprio thing of being inherently charming and fighting against it yeah and being like no I don't want to be charming in movies yeah let me let me be ugly and angry and, and, and naughty miserable yeah like, and then let me be one of these things let me be crushingly depressed in this movie or <laughs> right can we talk a little bit about the the Navajo bit of this movie because I feel like we haven't really discussed it we have not so go ahead so uh, John Malkovich Westeros has has <laughs> still funny. Oh has purchased it gets a large the more we say it. chunk of land in the Valley <laughs> of the Gods in order to mine it for uranium, and we get this story set in a, a Navajo uh, town, I guess, on the outskirts of whatever the big city is. That is the other setting of this movie, and um, we're introduced to these two characters whose names aren't on the Wikipedia page. By the way, they don't list any of the Navajo actors. Uh, on, on Wikipedia, so I got to dig into IMDb to get their names. But we're, we're, we get we get introduced to this younger guy with long hair who uh, is I just seems to be dealing drunk. with. It's 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 unclear. You know, he's drunk, but he seems to be dealing with. Uh, it, at first, it seems like he's dealing with maybe bipolar or something because his behavior is very erratic. He'll like it break is. out into really intense you know, bouts of like manic anger where he'll run into a bar and get into fist fights with people and then he has to get thrown out. And um, we find out that this guy though is is severely depressed because of the uranium mining that's going on. He's been somehow rendered sterile and yeah. he can no longer have a child with his girlfriend wife who he lives in a uh, like a small house with. A trailer. And, um, like a trailer, yeah. It's a trailer. Is it true? I, I don't remember. I just thought it was like a long house. Was it on wheels? I was it a car? <laughs> I don't know. All right. Anyways, uh, and and he's depressed about that and mad, and that that issue is creating a tension in their relationship, and that's all a setup to what is what we've already talked about a little bit. But I just wanted to give the backstory where he, in one state of just complete depression, just abject depression, he's just sprawled out on the desert floor. He gets it in his head to crawl up the side of this stone abutment, and What's then called the love stone, the love stone, mm. and then he he crawls up to like a terrace, love stone, a terrace love level stone. of the love stone, and me, I, I was watching this, and it just looks for a while. They hold a close up on his face. It looks like he's having a seizure, but you very quickly realize that he is just. He is he is straight up deep in this rock. Oh yeah, and I he, was trying to th- I was trying it. to. Rem- Dude, I rewound to see if there was a weird hole because I was like, what is he fucking? Yeah, it was unclear. It's like, is he mashing right. his dick just roughly against the flat She's surface of the rock? It. 
<laughs> and at first, like at first, because like he climbs up it, right? Yeah, he climbs yeah. up it, right? So at first, I thought he was just was like collapsed and tired. Yeah, and then it holds on, and then I'm like, wait a second, wait a minute, he's <gasps> he's making love to this rock. He would never. Oh, he is. Well, and, this uh, is this is a question I had, right? And I don't know if you're meandering towards this, Jacob. <laughs> but I'll uh, tell you, uh, were they? Were they just sort of like humans, it like doing, uh, sort of mirror behaviors of their gods or something? Was this like, was he supposed to be some sort of like earthly version of a god who like impregnates the earth in their creation myth or something? Well, like that? what's interesting is that the movie opens up with what seems like an ep- excerpt from a creation myth, a Navajo creation myth, right. and it and it involves this like you know, poetic description of a person walking through the desert and stumbling or hearing a baby's cry in the distance and stumbling upon this baby seemingly born from nobody. And, um, yeah, yeah, come straight out of the mountain, which then the movie literalizes with a guy fucking the mountain. And then the mountain gives birth to a baby, which comes to a great follow-up scene where an elder Navajo goes and finds this baby attached to a very long umbilical cord that is hooked into the mountain. The umbilical cord coming out of the rock was actually, I forgot to say, that was really cool. And he has to separate the umbilical cord, and he carries this baby, which apparently weighs a metric ton, and (laughs) is made out of rock, but just looks like a normal baby. And he he starts to take care of this child, and then the child... uh, It's funny, because this movie jumps around, and it cuts away from scenes when I'm just about to get interested in them. And there's like this logistical scene where the people in the the town in the Navajo town are trying to just get this baby somewhere. They don't really make it clear <laughs> where, but they're all hitching, you know, this tiny cradle to a uh, crane and trying to drive it over and the crane is so weighed down by the the baby that it it breaks and it slams into the ground. You know, you know what it looks like the old man has the ability to change yeah. the baby's weight. Well, cuz like, he can I, personally lift the baby up, right? He does he can, that. He can the lift beginning. the baby up. It's like how did it get on the crane? And it seems like he, because then the the drunken guy who fathered the child from the rocks uh, tries to pick (laughs) up the baby. And then there's some great CGI where the the ground cracks because he's trying so hard and the baby's so heavy. (laughs) Yeah, you can't Uh, do it. I feel like like the old man. Yeah. This is like, the baby's an X-Men sort of. Like, I think it like can change its density. Uh, It's like the blob. It's it's just immovable. Yes, exactly. (laughs) This baby's like the X-Men blob. Yeah, right. this is this is a stealth X Men reboot, right? But <laughs> like the Navajo aspect, like it felt like in my like, like my take was that he got he just was grasping at whatever random data was floating around his life, and it was one of them was this PR campaign he quit for a company that was going to mm-hmm. excavate in Navajo territory, and like that informed his decision to drive out there with his fucking desk that I guess him and his wife both wrote at. And that's why it's sentimental. And, uh, and he then, writes longhand. Yeah. yeah. Cause yep. He's an artist, but like, so like, so then the inclusion of like, there's like native Americans as like a bit of, you know, the original inhabitants of America. And therefore like this, like, you know, dark and bloodied sort of, flip side to the coin of america as a as a country and whatever but i i was really struggling to figure out yeah like how it ties into the other themes of this guy's alienation and like let me explain it all here very simply for you oh sure at the end of the Please. movie 
Josh is sitting there shirtless at the desk as uh, his wife in long flowing robes appears behind him and hugs him <laughs> as yeah. as he lets all of the pages blow away. Oh, so right. the lesson of this That's movie... That's why it's Tony Robbins. Exactly. So the lesson of this movie... Or the the main idea of it is that all of that stuff with John Malkovich and giant rock babies and everything, that's all just a bunch of nonsense that he had to get out of his head. And now it's gone, and it doesn't matter because he reconnected with his his wife. Who's now an angel. Who's <laughs> now an angel. In the metaphor. That's all. In and the metaphor like, of his brain. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes you just gotta you just gotta get out to nature, just get that bullshit out of your head, Sometimes and then you embrace. Just gotta, you gotta rise and grind, and you exactly. gotta just you know fucking get up, get the work done. Yeah, make yeah, make a, your own coffee as opposed to buying it, and you save yourself three seventy five each day, and eventually you'll amass millions like Kevin O'Leary, and you'll become a Shark Tank member. All about yeah. that hustle, bro. Yeah. You'll be like Ty Lopez mindset. You know what I mean? But like it does feel a bit like you're right though like it, you you were half joking about the pages blowing away and it's just nonsense but like like that was the feeling I got was like he wrote this silly magical realist story off of a basically a dare that his therapist said in terms of like do something w- weird I feel like right. And, and all he, he did like, was, was take a bunch of stuff, whether it was, like, that homeless guy he bumped into when he was blindfolded. Just steal. Or just, like, that that <laughs> project he was working on at, at, at work. Just all, just, like, the, the Navajo people who were there in, in the place that he went to. He, he kind of sozade his own plot. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. He was, like, P-tier. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it and it was all to like, uh, through art tackle his personal demons. Like I, that's basically like what I'm giving this movie as its message. It's yeah, like, Matt, because you know what chapter ten of the interstitials was called. I don't know if I stopped paying attention. Big master Mafia's, of fiction, uh, master of fictions, right? And we I'm are like, all the masters of our own fiction. So just says go watch West that fucking Will. Just go watch Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell. Like just like you know what I mean. It's like, ugh. Yeah. The creative act, I don't know. Go watch adaptation. So I think like the the literalization, yeah, do that. Uh, of like a Navajo myth about creation is supposed to be like the way that like you know the the other metaphor is like uh, what, what who who comes out of Zeus's fucking forehead? Hera, no, I don't know. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, just I using mythology, using creation mythology, like to just create a. A, a somewhat faux deep parallel between the creative act and something. I don't. I don't even know. This, I'm already losing the threads of my. I have no argument, guys. I think it's about time to wrap this episode up. Yes. <laughs> you, can you hear? You can hear our literal thoughts just mushing. Right. But but in conclusion, Jake and I enjoyed this movie more than we expected to. Matt enjoyed it less. Yeah. Uh, the odds of that anyone listening to this episode actually watching the movie, I think are <laughs> relatively low. Yes, but if anyone yeah. can tell us more about Lech Majewski's f- other work, reach out to us. One guys, of them looked any, like any, it had Rutger Hauer in it. I might look that one up. Yeah, That's the and guys, Miller and the Cross or whatever. That's supposed yeah. to be really good. Yeah. Uh, Josh liked it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and by the way, one thing that we have not said in a while. Mm. 
Josh Hartnett, if you're listening, if anyone knows Josh Hartnett and can reach out to him for us, yeah. we would love to have Josh on the show. Yeah. We have so many questions for him. We find his career truly fascinating and wonderful. Yeah. It has brought so much joy into our lives. So, Josh, <laughs> please come on the show. Because next week, we are going to download Quibi so that we can watch all the stuff he's done. I'm trying to download uh. Quibi so hard. Yeah, it's true. We're, we're going to do it. Okay. Uh, guys, any final thoughts about uh, Valley of, of the Gods? No, uh, I, I have a heart on, though, for this one. You know what? I've, I've, I've got a little heart on. Yeah. I was like... I, I was getting interested. My hard on was starting to form at the end a little bit, but it was it was lackluster and it wouldn't have been able to accomplish anything. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that one, and, and so instead you just like wander off on your own and like fuck a mountain. I fuck a mud hole or something. Yeah. 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 Um. Anyway, I I, I want to say uh, thank you to Brian Tolles for our theme song. Thank you to. Uh, me for our artwork because we're <laughs> using the old cover art for this episode. Me, baby. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Keanu Podcast because that's <laughs> what we usually do these days. Uh, follow us or email us if you want, KeanuPodcast at gmail.com. Ooh, yeah, please. Um, if, if you know how to reach Josh, uh, email us there about that. Um, we uh, next week our Quibi episode, um, and uh, that we may have a break after that. Uh, and then we we go off into into the wilderness to record more Keanu episodes. And uh, we, look, look, we got stuff in the future. We've now worked out our like Zoom recording setup, and I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm pleased yeah. with this. This is nice. I'm comfy. Yeah. So uh, so hey, I've 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 got to go uh, walk over to Target and pick up some curtains because Matt took the ones that we used to share. Uh, <laughs> he he got the curtains in the divorce. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and so now all I will say is to be excellent to each other. Bye. Okay. Peace. <laughs>